Please turn with me to Acts chapter 17. We're going to read together from verse 22 through to the end of the chapter. Here we have uh, Paul, par excellence, preaching to the Areopagus, the philosophical elite of Athens. And here is Luke's account for us in God's word. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and their boundaries and their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all, by raising him from the dead. Now when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined and believed, joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, may we feel the moment of excitement as Paul stands before these elites, these brilliant minds. May we feel the anticipation of your spirit moving in his words as he declares the glorious gospel. And may we heed the warning that is declared to them that there is still a day set that you have appointed where you will judge the world by a man. Father, we pray as we look through these words that you would grant us insight and transform us more and more into the image of that one whom we love and believe in. In his name we pray. Amen. I want uh, you to imagine that you've just bought a house and you need to renovate that house. Uh, You didn't do very much research before buying it. Um, You get there and you see that the 
the work needing to be done is far more serious than you'd first imagined. It's not just a case of stripping off some wallpaper and adding some paint. There are uh, whole walls that need to be ripped out because they're crumbling and rotten and falling to bits. Uh, and as you go deeper into things, you realise that it's worse still, that actually the rot goes down to the floor and into the uh, very foundations of the house. And you're thinking, at this point, I really need to get somebody in to evaluate this house and tell me what we need to do, something you probably should have done before buying the house. And yet, uh, you've done it now, and they come along and they give you even worse news. They say the rot is so bad, the foundation's so uh, crooked and cracked, that it's really a, a complete new build that needs to be done. And you say, well, can't we just patch it up? Can't we just drill down a bit deeper and, and add some steel here and there and, and, and get something that works? And the person says, well, unfortunately, the, worst is the, uh, the news is even worse still. Uh, there's, there's no rock underneath. This has been built on sand. And it is going to just continue to sink and crack and break no matter what you do to it. What do you do with a house like that? There's only one thing you can do with a house like that, and that is tear it down. Tear it down and build another one somewhere else on a firm rock, on a firm foundation. This is what we must do when we come to Christ. We cannot simply have a portion of our lives renovated. We cannot even have some of the more foundational assumptions of our life renovated. We need a whole new house. We need a whole new building built on the rock of Christ Jesus. And when Jesus said those words, of course, this is what I'm referring to, telling us to build our house on the solid rock of his word and not on the sand. He was not anticipating that somebody who had a house on the sand already might be able to just shore up the foundation and make it work for them. He's saying, no, no, the house on the sand will fall, the house on the rock will stand firm. The only thing to do is to move house. The only thing to do is to destroy that building and build a new one on the foundation of Christ and his word. Now I want you to apply this then to the work of evangelism. If you go out and preach the gospel... And there are people there who have a house. They have a house built on the sand. They have a house with rotten foundations. It is not at all your job to simply take the gospel and try to renovate portions of their house. To do so would be to set them up for catastrophe. What you must do is destroy the house, leaving them homeless and in need of a better house. This is the, I'm I'm stretching the metaphor out as far as I can. The house they're in cannot stand. They need a new one. So this is what we have something of today as we look at uh, Paul's approach, his method and his message when he comes to the philosophers in Athens in the Areopagus. He's come uh, and he has seen the, uh, the idols in the city He's seen the the philosophical um, debates and discussions that have taken place. He's seen the sin and the corruption, the various uh, groups and moralities that are associated with those groups. He's come and he realises 
that this is not a house that can be rescued. Because no house not built on the rock of Christ can be rescued. It must be destroyed and it must be rebuilt. This is the point that I want to press upon you this morning. And this is particularly relevant for us today because, as I mentioned, as I laboured last time we were together two weeks ago, uh, the society of Athens was not that different philosophically from Auckland. You walk through Auckland and it is the city of idols. Uh, it's the city of idols to all such gods. Uh, it is a city of idols to gods that people don't even know how to name or describe. It is a city with all sorts of philosophical conflicts and competing worldviews and ideas. And it's a city of great immorality. And so we come to the text today with a special interest in how we might go about bringing the gospel to our city as he brings the gospel to his city. So we have an insight then into Paul's method Paul's method for bringing the gospel to an idolatrous and philosophically sophisticated city like Auckland. We have his method and we have his message. That's what I want to go through this morning. His method is to destroy the house they're in, leaving them homeless. His message is to rebuild a house for them that they might live on firm foundations. Okay. So this is what we are going to do, looking at Paul's method. Now, as we approach the text, there is a a question that we just need to answer first off. Uh, A number of people have read this passage and looked at Paul's method. Method is a big theme in Acts chapter 17. But they have seen in this passage not an example to follow, but an example not to follow. I just want to address that quickly. Uh, People have said that here Paul really learned his lesson not to deal with the philosophers. Notice he goes on from Athens to Corinth. And in Corinth we have that, uh, that famous statement in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2. And when I came to you, brothers, I did something different from what I did in Athens. When I came to you, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Okay, so this is the argument. That Paul, when he's in Athens, he approaches the philosophical elites, and when he realises that it didn't work, that there was just, you know, Dionysius and Damaris and a few others that are saved through this effort, he changes tactic and decides now we're just going to focus on the cross, we're just going to focus on the gospel. Now, I don't think that is what's going on. um, For a couple of reasons. Number one, there's nothing in Acts that would suggest that at all. In fact, there's nothing in 1 Corinthians that would suggest that. Uh, There's nothing in the narrative that Luke gives us that would suggest what he did in Athens is different from what he did in Corinth, or that what he did in Athens is not ideal, and what he did in Corinth is ideal. There's also nothing to indicate that in Athens he didn't focus on the cross. He didn't also preach Christ and him crucified. Now, uh, some have pointed out that actually when you go through the, the testimony, the, the gospel presentation in Athens, he actually doesn't mention the cross. But I would just labour to remind you that all of the sermons we have in the book of Acts are mere summaries of what actually would have taken place. I think it's very, very unlikely 
that Paul would have stood up and taken this, uh, this opportunity to declare the gospel and given them literally two minutes of a sermon, which is about how long it takes to read what he said. There would have been great exposition. There would have been argumentation. There would have been the cross. I imagine it would have been very difficult to get to the resurrection, which he does mention without mentioning the cross. Wouldn't you agree? And we should also remember that in Corinth and in 1 Corinthians, where it says he knew nothing but the cross, it doesn't actually mean he knew nothing but the cross. Of course, he knew about the, the worldview behind the gospel. He, he would have taught the creation, the fall. He would have taught the history. He would have taught the sovereignty of God. He would have taught uh, the need. Uh, he would have taught the resurrection. He would have taught the ascension. He would have taught the ruling and reigning of Christ now. All of those things are related to, but different from, a message that's just about the cross. And so we have a, a statement about his focus in 1 Corinthians 2, not uh, to the exclusion of all else. I think what he does in Athens is, is he gives us the method he uses to get to the cross. That's what he does. The method that he uses to get to the gospel. And the method being, I'm going to make you homeless and I'm going to give you a new house to live in. That's the method. Now another uh, criticism that's been made is that he's, he's really overly contextualising his message. He's, he's too agreeable with the philosophers. He's saying, well, you know, your philosophers really had some good points. Let me quote a couple of them for you. I noticed that you're almost there. You've got this idol to an unknown God. You know, if I could just help you a little bit, you'd be there. I don't actually think that's what he's doing either. He's not renovating their house. He's not saying, you know, you've, you've got a pretty good house here. I just need to paint the walls for you. Or I just need to give you some furniture. He's destroying the house that he might build it again on solid foundation. I want to show you that that is how uh, it works. That is what he's going to do. He's going to demonstrate to them the bankruptcy of their worldview, the sinfulness of their worldview and their rebellion against God. And on that basis, he's going to call them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That's Paul's method. So, let me then state the case positively for you as to what Paul is doing. And I want to state it by reading a proverb, which you might like to discuss over lunch this afternoon. The proverb goes like this. Proverb 26 and verse 4 and 5 says this. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Isn't that amazing? He says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be wise in your own eyes. And then the very next verse, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Now, you could be very unfair and say, well, this is just a blatant contradiction. We've got to chuck this whole thing out. They don't know what they're doing. Now, you could possibly get away with that critique if these verses were miles away from each other. But they are right beside each other. Whoever wrote this saw it when he wrote it. Right? He's like, yeah, I can see that, that, that that's how I want to say it. There is no tension in the author's mind. And there is no tension in the text if we understand it correctly. Here's what is being said. The idea of answering or not answering according to his folly is meant in two different senses. So answer not a fool according to his folly in the sense 
Don't answer a fool in a way that agrees with his folly, lest you be like him yourself. And then in verse 5, answer a fool according to his folly, in the sense, answer the fool in a way that addresses his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Do you see? So answer not a fool. Uh, Answer him not in a way that agrees with his folly, in case people think you're just like him. But do answer him according to his folly, lest people think that he's wise. Okay? So it's this answer not and answer strategy or method that Paul is using in Athens. So this is the essence, I think, of the misunderstanding of Paul. They think that he is answering them in a way that agrees with their folly. They think that Paul is agreeing with their philosophical foundations, with their idol worship, and he's just wanting to build upon that. That's not what he's doing. He's answering the fool in a way that addresses their folly. What he's doing is he is stepping into their worldview in order to demonstrate its sinful rebellion against God, its bankruptcy, and then he is going to step back into his own worldview and demonstrate that it is the only reasonable way forward, and on that foundation he preaches the gospel. Okay? This is the method that we have. Now, where do we see that? Okay, we need to go through the text, and I've I've just flicked across and I've lost my place, so I need to find it again. Acts chapter 17. We see it... In verse 22, 23 to begin with. So he says this to them. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. Now what is he saying there? He's saying for all of your knowledge... For all of your religiosity, for all of your spirituality, for all of your uh, philosophy, you don't really know what you're doing. You don't know what you're worshipping. You haven't got a clue. You make a good show of your worship. You make a good show of piety. But really, you don't know much about this stuff. You're in the dark on these things. He's pointing that out to them using their own words, using their own religious system to make that plain to them. Paul is not equating God with this unknown idol. You've got to get that, right? I mean, can you just imagine that thought going through Paul's mind? Oh, there's a shrine to an unknown God. That's probably Yahweh. That is an impossibility in Paul's worldview. Rather, what he's doing is he's recognizing an attempt being made to reach out to whatever deity or divinity that might be out there. And he's using that as a launch pad to tell them about the God of Scripture. And he's pointing out to them that even in their attempts to reach out to things unknown, they are falling radically short. And the best they can come up with is the unknown God. He's answering the fool, not in a way that agrees with his folly, but in a way that will address his folly. You see? Now the theme continues when we drop down to verse 26 and 27. He says this, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is 
actually not far from each one of us. Now what's going on there? Again, this is a place I think people misunderstand Paul. He's not suggesting to them that what they're doing is wonderful. They are almost there. They just need to get a bit further and they will find God. Rather, what he's saying is this. That God has made himself plainly known to you through providence, through creation. That you should seek after him. And yet really the best you've managed to do is blindly feel after him, even though he's not even very far away from you. This is the force of the, the, the word there in the Greek, that to feel their way after him. There's a statement about what they should do, and then there's a statement about what they are doing. They should seek God. And yet what they're doing, and all they've managed to do, is feel their way toward him. There's a, a famous story in Homer's Odyssey, which would have been known, uh, about the... You remember, I don't know if any of you have heard the story about the Cyclops. You've, some of you would have. It's, it's a hilarious story uh, of um, uh, the guy Odysseus, I think his name was. And uh, he encounters the Cyclops. Cyclops is a monster with one eye. And he's hiding in a cave. And the Cyclops has trapped him there and is going to eat him the next day. He's just keeping the man until he's hungry again. And he calls out to, the, to Odysseus and he says, What's your name? And Odysseus says, nobody. And he says, well, Mr. Nobody, I'm going to eat you tomorrow, or whatever it is. Now, then he, uh, he tricks the Cyclops into drinking too much wine, and the Cyclops falls asleep, and then he blinds the Cyclops. He stabs him in the eye. Okay. So then the Cyclops is blind, and he calls for his buddies. He calls for his other Cyclops buddies, because he's been blinded. And he says, I'm blind, I'm blind, I've been blinded. And the other Cyclops buddies say, oh, well, who did it to you? Nobody. And so they, leave, they, they head off and they leave him to it. And then there's this, this funny uh, picture being painted of the Cyclops with, with no vision feeling forward through the cave to try to find Odysseus. And the, the story goes that he managed to manoeuvre uh, away from the Cyclops all night until the daytime when he could finally escape. That's the word being used in the text. It is this silly, foolish poking around trying to find your way towards something that you really have no hope of finding. That's the point being made by Paul in saying it in this particular way. Though God has made his presence known, though he isn't far from you, and though you should seek God, really what you're doing is feeling your way toward him. That's the idea being presented. Now it continues on as he quotes these two uh, uh, poets, which they would have been familiar with. The first quote in 20, 28, or the two quotes in verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now again, he's not agreeing with the folly. He is addressing the folly. Those are true statements, but here's what he says next. This is what you've managed to deduce from those statements. This is how these statements have impacted your worship. They've caused you to make idols 
They've caused you to build temples. They've caused you to invent gods with silver and gold that need to be served, literally served with human hands, that they may be sustained. He's saying that though there is a a sense of God in your worldview, it has produced foolishness and nonsense. That's the point that he's making. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. You see what he's doing? He is not answering the fool in a way that agrees with their folly. He's answering the fool in a way that addresses their folly and shows how foolish it is. He's doing, uh, he's actually uh, really building his case on uh, the same thing that he says, remember, in uh, Romans chapter 1. You remember the famous statement, Romans chapter 1. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. That's what they were doing. There was a sense of divinity, there was a sense of there is a God out there, and yet they had distorted and suppressed that into utter nonsense and foolishness. He's not renovating the house, is he? He's not just coming and saying, we just need to add some furniture, we need to add some paint. He's saying, this house is rotten. You need to repent. You need to change. So this is the method that we see Paul using, and it's a method that we ought to continue to use. When there are worldviews that oppose the Christian worldview, we ought to learn about that worldview. We ought to notice internal tensions and contradictions and show the foolishness of it and destroy that house in order to rebuild a new one on the foundation of God and his word. Amen? This is the method that Paul is using. But making people homeless is not really the goal, is it? Simply saying the house you live in isn't working, you need to destroy it. It would be immoral, actually, to just do that and not to then build a house that they can move into and believe in and love and live in and be successful. And so Paul moves to talking about the alternative house built on the word of God. And notice he goes through the whole story, basically, starting with creation. He talks about God made the world. This is verse 24 through 27. God made the world. God rules the world. That's very, very important. God didn't just make it and then let it go. He rules the world. He directs the world. He's sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over the the boundaries of land and the boundaries of countries and the allotment of different peoples and so on. He's sovereign over the whole thing. And he sustains the world as well. This is the Christian worldview. This is the foundation for the Christian worldview. And it is only within that worldview that you can make sense, proper sense of reality. 
how we uh, perceive reality. Morality, where does that come from? It comes from a Christian worldview. Order, where does that come from? Logic, beauty, where does beauty come from? Even life itself. These are fundamental things that come from a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview, and that have no place in unbelieving worldviews that place the creature as God. The Christian worldview is so comprehensive, it even explains belief and unbelief. Why there are people who would be so foolish as to reject God and reject the Christian worldview. God has set eternity in the hearts of man. God has made himself known through the things that have been made. And yet we have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. We have chosen to worship the creature rather than the creator. So he has destroyed the house. He has built a new house for them to consider. But he still hasn't finished his job, has he? He needs to get them in the house. And so he needs to give them the gospel. It cannot simply be that you destroy a house or show them a better house. You've got to not just win the argument, you've got to win the soul. Yeah? So this is what he turns to in verse... Oh, look what I did again. Here we go. He turns to in verse 31. 30, sorry. The times of ignorance God has overlooked... But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Ignorance does not equal innocence. Repentance is needed. God has delayed his judgment. But now he commands repentance because he has fixed a day where he will judge the world for its sin. And he has given assurance of that by raising Jesus from the dead, a miracle that Paul himself could be a witness to through his experience on the Damascus, Damascus Road. This is the heart of the matter. At the end of the day, Paul is not just interested in destroying homes or of showing off better ones. He's interested in saving people from sin. He's interested in winning souls. So Christianity is very reasonable. Great. But that doesn't save people. The only thing that saves is faith and trust in the cross. In Jesus Christ. Destroying someone's worldview doesn't help unless you preach the gospel to them. And that is the purpose for this entire sermon. A number of people I've heard expounding this passage have done a wonderful, wonderful job of articulating the method that Paul uses. This seems to be the the evangelistic method passage. And people will go here for their, um, the basis for their method, whether they read the text correctly or not. They'll see Paul as agreeing with the philosophers so we can agree with the world and, and renovate the house. They'll say, no, Paul's not agreeing with the philosophers, and so on it goes. 
But in all this discussion about method, we cannot fail to see the burden of the text. The burden of the text is not, at the end of the day, simply to get his method right. The burden of the text is to see this. God has set a day. The times of ignorance God has overlooked. But God commands now that everybody repent because he has set a day where he will judge the world by a man. So let me come to a close by pressing that burden upon you. God has set a day. It is closer today than it was 2,000 years ago. Can anybody dispute that? As sure as Jesus rose from the dead, so that day is coming. So let me ask you, have you done what God has commanded you to do? Have you repented of your sin? You might say, well, I can repent tomorrow. What if tomorrow is the day? What if tomorrow is the day? A day has been set. There is a date. There is a time written in heaven. It is 2,000 years closer today than it was 2,000 years ago. Now, I was never very good at math at school, but I've got that far. Have you done what God has commanded you? Have you repented of your sins? Or are you considering the time that you have left and thinking there will be time for this tomorrow? You know, in um, action movies, they sometimes have that scene where the, they'll walk into a room and they'll hear this, this ticking. Tick, 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 tick. And you know, everybody starts panicking because you know what's happening. They've hit the, there's a bomb, right? And everybody starts panicking and they have to find this bomb. They have to defuse this bomb. Because if the bomb goes off, that's it. They'll perish. But then, what I've never seen in an action movie is somebody will say something like this. They'll say, if somebody said this, you know, it's okay, because as long as it's ticking, we're still alive. There's time left. Everybody would look at that person and think, it's unfortunate that you were cast for this rock. Because everybody in that situation knows that the ticking, yes, it means you're still alive. But one day, one moment, not long from now, the ticking is going to stop. And catastrophe will come. So Paul is telling these ones, the times of ignorance have passed. God now calls everyone everywhere to repent. Because a day has been set, a time has been set, there is a date in heaven and there is a ticking sound going on. And one day that ticking is going to stop and catastrophe is going to come upon any house not built on the rock of Jesus Christ. So it's not unloving to destroy someone's house in order that you might bring them into a new one. Give them the gospel that they may be saved from that catastrophe. But this delay tactic, this whole, I can come again and repent tomorrow. Now, this is exactly what uh, some of his audience says. Did you notice? 
There's three groups that hear the message. One group hears the resurrection, they start laughing, they start mocking. Now that's common. It's bizarre, but it's common. Here are these folks who have had their worldview destroyed, and then they hear of hope, the resurrection, they start mocking, they start laughing. It's irrationality in the highest degree. But it's common. The other group are those who believe. A wonderful group of believers. Verse 34, among, uh, among those who believed, uh, some men, sorry, yeah, verse 34, but some men joined him and believed, among whom was Dionysius and the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. And uh, I wonder if the others with them would have loved if their names were mentioned as well, but that's okay. We might meet them in heaven, they'll say, by the way, I was in the Bible. I didn't see you. Oh, I'm, I'm the others. But the, the third group, it's mentioned in the middle here. Some heard and mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. And so Paul went out from their midst. And what does that tell you? They're not rejecting it. They're not saying this is complete nonsense. We don't want anything to do with this again. They're not accepting it either. They're saying, let's just keep talking about this. You come again next week, tomorrow, whenever it is. We'll hear you again. We'll make our decision at that point. And I want to just suggest that there are many people in this room who do the same thing every single week. There are people who have heard the gospel many, many, many times, and they've said, well, there is time. I can hear it again next week. I can hear it again the week after. I can repent then. What if the day written in heaven is tomorrow? And so I would just press upon you the great urgency and the great burden of Paul in this passage. That the command went out 2,000 years ago that all people repent. That a day has been set, that evidence has been given, and that the bomb is ticking. And one day it will stop ticking and catastrophe will come upon the house not built on Christ Jesus. I'll leave that with you. Let's pray together. Father God, I do pray that we would not wait one more sentence to be spoken before turning to you in repentance. Father, may you burden us with the burden that is on Paul's heart. For those of us who by your grace have come to know you. May we feel the burden of that day and take this message of repentance and salvation to the world around us. May we be bold in declaring the foolishness of the world. May we be bold and wise and gracious and kind in the proclamation of your gospel as a means by which, as the means by which men might be saved. Lord, I, I plead for the souls of those who do not know Christ in this room who would foolishly wait another moment, another day, another week, another year before considering these things seriously and coming before you in repentance. Lord, do a work in their minds and their hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.